I received a number of emails or comments from you this week about how many of you had done the assignment that I gave you to do last week, that you went and you asked the Lord uh, to speak to you through a portion of Scripture, and I got to hear a whole lot of stories of how God had done that, and that was super encouraging. It was really great to hear God speaking uh, to you individually. I also did my assignment this week, and I went and asked the Lord, is there a particular passage of Scripture? Is there something you, can, uh, you have for me to address some things I was thinking about? And he took me to the story of Joseph. And while I was there uh, in the story of Joseph, he not only sort of spoke to me about some questions I had about things personally, but also began to sort of open my mind and help me to understand how that story has to do with what we were going to talk about this morning. And so in particular, he took me to the part of Joseph's story where he is uh, reconnecting with his brothers. Now many of you are familiar with the story, but let me just remind you of the details of how it works. Joseph is the 11th of 12 children for his father, Jacob. Now, he was Jacob's favorite child, and God had also given Joseph powerful dreams, which Joseph didn't use a lot of discernment with in sharing with his brothers, which caused them to have great antagonism towards him. Well, his brothers who are angry and antagonistic towards Joseph take out their anger on him by selling him into captivity, slavery in Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and so when Joseph goes to Egypt, God's hand is with Joseph, and he soon becomes the second in command in Egypt. Under Only Pharaoh alone is above him. Meanwhile, God, who is at work in all things, causes there to be a famine in Canaan where Joseph is from, where his 11 brothers still live and where his dad is still living. There's no food in Canaan. The only place where there's food is Egypt. And guess who's in charge of the distribution of food? Joseph. Now, of course, humanly speaking, we would look at this as a rich irony. Here's this brother that they hated that they were uh, mean to and antagonistic towards. Now he's the one in a position of power and these brothers are going to have to come to Joseph and beg him for food in order to survive. Joseph, however, doesn't make use of the fact that he has this power and can now in turn hurt his brothers. Instead, when they show up, he welcomes them. Uh, He welcomes them with open arms. Now he does put them through some difficult things along the way but it's only so that he can affirm his love for them. But then you get to the part in Genesis uh, 50 where Jacob, Joseph's father, dies. And the 11 brothers are worried that now that their father is dead, that Joseph has this latent hatred that he's just been covering up. Now they're in trouble. But we pick up the story in Genesis 50 When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. 
This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Now, just as an aside, I'm pretty sure that's a lie. Because we have Joseph's, uh, Jacob's words that were recorded to Joseph, and he never says anything like this. In fact, we know that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers, but his brothers have given way to fear, and so they've made up this lie about what Jacob said to them. Nonetheless, continue with the story. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Wept that his brothers would think that now he would carry out a grudge against them. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now there's a word for what Joseph has done here. The word is called reconciliation. He's been reconciled to his brothers. His brothers were antagonistic towards him. He was at first angry with them but he's chosen now to embrace them, to forgive them, to be reunited with them. And that is a word that we call reconciliation. This morning, that's the subject we want to talk about, and it turns out that Joseph's actions towards his brother, his brothers, are a beautiful picture of God's actions towards us. So please take a Bible, and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. It's page 914 in the Bibles you might have picked up on the way in. Romans chapter 5. While you're turning, let me put up a chart that we used three weeks ago. Many of you may remember this chart. This was from Romans chapter 3. And in Romans chapter 3, we had the opportunity to look at four big theological words that were just this beautiful picture of what God accomplished for us in Jesus. Just to review, we looked first at the word justified. And I told you from Romans 3 that the word justified is a legal term. It comes out of the legal world, and it means to be declared righteous, to be innocent, And we said how Jesus, because of Jesus, God declares us to be righteous through Jesus. We looked at the word redemption, another major theological word. That's a word that comes not out of the legal world, but out of the financial world. It's a financial term. That Jesus paid the debt that our sin caused. And so that we are no longer enslaved to sin and death, we now belong to God. We also looked at the word atonement. Atonement, I told you, was a relational word. And it talks about the fact that uh, Jesus made amends for our sins. The things that we did wrong that separated us from God, Jesus fixed those things. He made them right. 
And then the fourth word we looked at a few weeks ago from Romans 3 was the word demonstrate. That's a public relations word. And it means that God made a public demonstration of his love, his justice, and his faithfulness. That the cross is the objective public sign that God loves us and that God is holy and just to deal with sin as it must be dealt with. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to add a fifth theological word to this chart. In your notes, you have this chart reproduced, and then you have a column for our fifth word that we're going to look at today. And in many ways, this is the most beautiful of all of the words, and it's really the one that the other four are pointing toward. So I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 1 to 11, and then we'll work through this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Our fifth big theological word that explains what God did for us through the death of Jesus on the cross is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, to follow along in the chart, just so it's all nice and neat and the columns all go together in the rows... Reconciliation is also a relational word. Justification is a legal term. Redemption is a financial term. Atonement is a relational word. Demonstration is a public relations word. Reconciliation, we are back in the world of relationships. To be reconciled is talking about our connection with another person or our connection with God, that interpersonal relationship. It's a relational word. What it means is to be at peace with someone, to be good with someone, to have everything between you and another person or between you and God to be good. You can see this if you understand the opposite of reconciliation, which is enmity or antagonistic uh, relationship. If there's a rift between your relationship and another person, the solution is reconciliation. 
reconciliation is, okay, we're good now. Whatever was there before, whatever was causing the problem, whatever made me antagonistic towards you or you antagonistic towards me, that's now been taken care of. So in the story of Joseph and his brothers, when his brothers choose to sell him into slavery, and Joseph's initial reaction is bitterness at what they've done to him, that creates an antagonistic relationship between the two of them. There is enmity between Joseph and his brothers. When Joseph chooses to forgive them, when Joseph chooses to embrace them, when his brothers choose to come and accept that forgiveness, then we have reconciliation. What Romans 5 is saying is that God, through Jesus' death on the cross, has reconciled us to himself. Our sin created an antagonistic relationship between us and God. We did things to him and to those that he loved, that he was not pleased with, and that created enmity between him and us. But through Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. God is good with us. We are at peace with God. Now, this word and the chart that I've given you, I gave it to you in the order that it appeared in the text. Four of them in chapter 3, and then one of them in chapter 5. What I want to do is I want to go through them in the order they happen logically, which isn't the order that they appeared for us in the text, to explain how everything leads to this term of reconciliation. So if we drew our chart sort of this way, at the bottom, at the base, the foundation of everything is the idea of atonement. This is the center. This is the hub. This is the foundation. This is the essence of everything that God has done for us in Jesus. Our sin caused there to be a problem between us and God, and Jesus has made atonement for it. He's made things right. Because his death makes atonement for our sin... We are redeemed by God. In other words, because Jesus paid the debt that our sin created, God is now able to set us free from sin and death, and we now belong to God. We've been redeemed. So the second piece is redemption. It's built on top of atonement. The third piece is justification. Because Jesus made amends for our sins, because we now belong to Jesus, God is free to declare us to be righteous. He's now free to pronounce sentence, not guilty, righteous in my sight. The fourth piece builds on the first three, and that is God demonstrates his love for us, that in this situation, because Jesus died for us, because he's paid the debt for our sins, because we have been declared to be righteous in God's sight, we have objective proof that God loves us, that each and every day of our lives, 
we can know that God is faithful and that he's just and that he loves us because he demonstrated that for us in Jesus' death. No matter how you and I feel when we wake up in the morning, God is every day demonstrating, I love you. I loved you when you were a sinner. I love you today. All of that leads to the fifth, the capstone piece. Because Jesus made atonement for our sins, because he set us free from sin and we now belong to God, because God has now declared us righteous, because each and every day God declares his love for us through the cross, we are reconciled to God. We are right with God. Our relationship with God has been restored. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to kind of put it in this framework is to realize the foundation piece, atonement, is a relational word. And the capstone word, reconciliation, is a relationship word. That from beginning to end, it's about our relationship with God. Sin destroyed the relationship. God, through Jesus, has fixed it. And everything, from beginning to end, is about our ability now because of Jesus to have a relationship with God. Now we want to think together about this capstone term, this term reconciliation. And we're gonna focus especially on the first two verses to really understand what is going on. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now in order to understand exactly what God is saying in this passage, we need to be very, very clear what God is not saying. What he is not saying is that because of Jesus, we are now neutral in God's sight. Okay, do you understand? He's not saying that our sin had created a deficit and that Jesus paid for that deficit and so we're back to even. That is not what is being said here. What's not being said is that God was angry with us because of our sin. Jesus has taken care of that, so God is simply no longer angry. That's not what's being said because that's not enough of what's being said. What's actually being said here is that God is not neutral towards us. God is good with us. That God is positively predisposed towards us. How do I know that? There are four things in these two verses that make it abundantly clear that God's attitude towards us is not neutral but positive. First, we have peace with God. Now the problem with hearing the English word peace is we normally think of peace as the absence of conflict. Technically, the United States and Russia are at peace. 
But if you think about the relationship between the United States and Russia as giving an indication of our relationship with God, you will completely miss the point of what God's saying. That is not what this is saying. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict. This word peace and what God is saying here is that God is good with us. The most nearest, uh, the nearest analogy if you're talking about states and their relationship to one another is the idea of most favored nation status. Now that's a political or economic term by which one state or government says to another country or government, you have the most favorable status in our minds, that we are connected. You get the very best deals in trade. You get the very best deals in uh, relationship between us. That's what this word peace actually means. We have, because of Jesus, in God's eyes, we are most favored child status. That's our status. Not neutral, not just, well, we're no longer fighting anymore. Between us and God, we have God's most favored child status. That's the first evidence. It's not neutral. God's attitude towards us is overwhelmingly positive because we have peace with God, most favored child. Second, we have been justified through faith. Now, one of the problems with the word justified is we can limit it to mean not guilty. It does mean not guilty, but it literally means more than that. The word justified means declared righteous. Now, one of the good sides of declared righteous is that you're no longer guilty. But there's another half to it, which is that we have been declared to be right with God. Like things are good, not just neutral, but good. Now, how in the world could sinners be declared not only not guilty, but also righteous? Well, Paul's going to spend some time in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 explaining how Christ's righteousness is given to us. But the point here is, is that we have been declared by God to be righteous, good. When God sees us, he does not see us simply as not guilty. He sees us as righteous. That's the second evidence, that our relationship with God is not neutral. God is positively predisposed towards us. Third, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Again, the English language gained access, that kind of makes it sound like God handed out some keys. And you can use the key if you feel like it to unlock the door. And if you want, you could stand in God's presence in grace. And it's up to us whether we choose to take advantage of the access that we've been given or not. Again, not what this is saying. What this is saying is we exist in a condition by which God views us in grace. We stand in grace. Meaning, when you and I accepted Jesus as our Savior, He no longer, God, no longer views us on the basis of what we do. 
He views us in grace. We stand in that position. That is the condition of who we are. He cannot view us any other way. It is impossible for God to view you or to view me apart from grace because that's now the condition in which we live. It's not neutral. We live in grace. Every interaction that God has with us, the way he views us, the way he thinks about us, is fully grace from beginning to end. Always grace. Fourth. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Again, guess what? Our English understanding of the word hope gives us the idea, oh, there's a chance we might get to experience the glory of God someday. That's not what it means in Greek, and it's not what it means uh, in this passage. Hope in Greek is a guaranteed assurance. There is absolutely no way this can't come true. And the point is, We are guaranteed that we are going to experience God's glory. We're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. We are going to see him as he is, and we are going to be like Jesus, which is what he promised to us. And the point is is that our relationship with God is conditioned on the fact that that's who we're going to be. That when God engages with us, he engages with us on the people we're going to be, like Jesus, not the people we used to be. Now, please, this is so, so very important. It's not lost on me that all four of these things in these two verses, all four of these things, peace, justified, access, and hope, all four of these can be taken in English to make it sound like our relationship with God depends on us. But the reality of what God is saying here is that is not the case. That is not the case. But the reason why I think these four things can be confusing for us is because Satan uses them to deceive us with one of his greatest lies. And that is he wants us to think that God is regularly angry with us. That somehow we are neutral at best and that if we work hard enough, if we run hard enough, if we pray hard enough, if we do enough things, then maybe, just maybe, God might be pleased with us. Listen, I have seen this lie and this deception everywhere. I've seen it in those who've grown up in Catholic backgrounds, for example. I've heard them call it Catholic guilt, this idea that somehow God is angry and we have to appease him. I've seen it in those who've grown up in legalistic backgrounds, where it's all about rules and that somehow we're only good enough if we follow all of the rules. I've seen it in those who have been so immersed in academia or in the business world or in sports, where the world tells you you're only as good as your next accomplishment. I've seen it in those who've grown up in families where they 
were only affirmed because of what they did and not because of who they were. I've seen it in those who've grown up in situations or marriages or families where they have been neglected and they think to themselves, my only value as a husband or a wife or a child is in what I do. Hear me right, this is a lie from Satan. God is saying in his own word, I am positively predisposed to you. My relationship with you is not one based on anger. You have most favored child status in my mind. Please, you've got to understand this. Now listen, does this mean that God's never displeased with anyone? No, 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 no. Does this mean that God doesn't ever get angry with sin? He does. Does this mean that if you're a Christian, you'll never be disciplined? No, you will be disciplined for sin. But fundamentally, the orientation that God has with us is that our default state is that he is positively predisposed to us. It's so powerful to me in the Joseph story that when Joseph thinks, when he hears that his brothers think he's going to turn on them, do you remember his response? He weeps. Why would you think this about me? Why would you think that I would be holding a grudge this long? Why would you think that I'm angry with you? Why would you think that I would want now to seek revenge? Listen, that is a picture of how God feels when we come to him with this lie that we got from Satan and from the world and those around us and we think, God holds a grudge against me. God's just waiting for a moment in which he can hit me upside the head. God is just looking for an opportunity to drop his judgment on me. Do you know what that makes God do? He weeps. How can you think this about me? You have peace. You've been justified. I view you with grace. We have an eternity together. Hear this, please. This is the word of God. God is not angry with you. He's not. He's not. Yes, you can do things that displease him, but his anger lasts only a moment. His favor lasts a lifetime. You are favorably predisposed. He is favorably predisposed to you. You have most favored child status. Please, please do not believe the lie that you're somehow only good enough if you can somehow earn God's favor. That when you wake up each morning, he's angry with you. It's not true. Because this is an area in which so many of us fall into deception, I want to just at least quickly mention two areas that Satan likes to use to deceive us to thinking God is angry with us. We're not going to spend any time on them because we're going to spend some more time on them in later passages in Romans. But because Paul mentions them here, I want to mention them. The first deception that Satan often uses to make us think that God is angry with us is suffering. That's verses 3 through 5. We think to ourselves, if God's good with me, if I'm at peace with God, then my life should be going better than it is. Why am I suffering? Why am I going through hard times? Why is my marriage so difficult? Why is my financial situation the way it is? Why was I diagnosed with cancer? Why am I going through? And the lie we're told is, if God was really good with you, if God was really pleased with you, life would be easy. Now we're going to spend some time when we get to Romans 8 talking about the role of suffering in 
the Christian life. But let me at least just mention what Paul says here. Far, be, far from suffering being evidence that God is angry with you, what it's actually evidence of is that God is so committed to transforming you and me to be like Jesus that he allows suffering in our life because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope, which is this promise that we are going to experience this beautiful relationship that we now have with God. If your life's not going very well, that's not evidence that God's angry with you. It's actually evidence that God loves you enough to keep transforming you so that your relationship with him can be all that he's promised it's going to be. Now, I know what you're thinking. You think, yeah, I get that when it's persecution or when it's good suffering. What about when it's bad suffering, like suffering because of sinful choices I made? Well, funny you should bring that up. That's Paul's second deception. The second deception, which is verses 6 through 11, is sin. Sins that we commit after we become Christians. Now listen to me. You've got to keep this in balance. God does discipline his children for sin. God is never pleased with sin. There are times in which God gets frustrated with us. There are times in which God even gets mad at us. But what verses 6 through 11 are saying is, listen, if when you were my enemy, I sent my son to die for you, why would you think that any sin you commit after you've accepted him would ruin our relationship? Listen, we formed the relationship when you hated me when you wanted nothing to do with me, when everything about you was against me, at that point I sent my son to die for you and I demonstrated my love for you. There is nothing that you can do that will ruin our relationship. Yes, you can do some things that obscure the blessings of the relationship. You can do some things that introduce some discipline into the relationship, but fundamentally God's relationship with us is that he loves us, we're at peace with him, we are justified, and God says, if I made you that way when you were my enemy, I will not let anything that you do ruin it. Do you understand what he's saying? That the basis of our relationship is God is favorably predisposed towards us. We have most favored child status. And yes, we can do some things along the way that result in the discipline of God or result in difficult things happening, but there is nothing that we can do that can jeopardize our fundamental status with God. Please, do you hear what what the Word of God is saying? Because you're going to walk out of here and you're going to hear the same lies that I hear which is if God was really good with you, life would be going better and you wouldn't be messing up so much. What God is saying is no. Jesus has made amends for your sins. You belong to Jesus and not to Satan's sin or death. You have been declared to be righteous in my sight. Every day you have an objective public demonstration of my love for you. And we're good. I'm at peace with you. 
I am favorably predisposed towards you. You have most favored child status. And there is nothing that can happen to you or nothing that you can do to jeopardize it. That's good news. That is the good news of the gospel. That because of Jesus, we've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God. If you're here this morning and you don't have peace with God, I got to tell you, come accept it. It's the best thing in the world. He wants you to, to stand in grace. He wants to forgive all your sins. If you've ever had a relationship with someone where something's not quite right, it tugs at you, doesn't it? It sort of eats at you. You know there's a person out there who, who things aren't right with. You know there's somebody who's meant something to you that things aren't right with. Listen, have you ever had that feeling between you and God? Have you ever had that feeling like if there's a God out there, something's not right between me and him? That's because it's not right. But in Jesus, God is making it right and all you have to do is accept and that relationship will be restored. Not simply moved back to neutral. Well, okay, now we'll see what we're going to do. That's not how it works. Where you move into a place where you have most favored child status. And for those of us who by faith have accepted Jesus, Listen, you got to accept the whole thing. And the whole thing is God says, I'm good with you. And when you want to tell him, no, you're not good with me, you and I don't have the right to do it. We accepted by faith that through this whole process, we have been reconciled to God. And God says, look, you keep wanting to fight with me, but I'm good with you. I'm just glad that you're my son. I'm just glad that you're my daughter. I mean, what is it that God says his fullest name is? The Lord the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And when you and I try to tell God that anger or disappointment is the basis of his relationship to us, it's a lie and an insult. He loves you. He's pleased with you. That doesn't justify everything you and I do, but fundamentally, his relationship with you and with me is that I'm good with you. I'm at peace with you. You're right in my eyes. You stand in grace and your future is guaranteed.